Good morning. All right, that was a good hearty good morning. Uh, the summer is winding down. I know for some of us that's a little bit of a disappointment, but uh, one of the things that I wanted to kind of focus on today as we look at Psalm 92 is the fact that God gives us lots of opportunities throughout Scripture to be reminded of what's important to Him so that we can know what should be important to us. And in Psalm 92, He reminds us of some things very strongly particularly as you look at Psalm 92, and I hope you would open your Bibles and look there with me and maybe follow along on your church app. But in Psalm 92, the major encouragement here is about Sabbath. And sometimes I think we only equate Sabbath with resting or stopping, but in the life of the nation of Israel, and when God instituted Sabbath for them, what he basically wanted them to do was not only rest, but worship. Rest was part of their worship. But their worship was so important that God wanted them to make sure that they knew it needed to be a time that was set aside, that was dedicated, that was valued to God's people because God values our interaction with him and he values our worship when we can come and bring it to him. So as we look at Psalm 92, I'm gonna read it in a moment, but I wanna give us two quotes that kind of hopefully will lead us in and help us Come apart from all the things that may have enveloped our week. And, and that can be almost anything for us, right? That can be uh, issues at home. That can be issues at work. That could just be personal struggles, things that you're dealing with. Whatever uh, has distracted our hearts this week, this is the time for the gathered church to be able to take away some of those distractions and focus on the Lord. Focus on what he's done for us and focus on what he's called us to. Psalm 92 walks us through that, and we'll jump in in a second. The first quote I want to share with you as we walk in this morning, and as I've thought a lot about this idea of worship, particularly gathered worship, there's something that seems to be linked to it in Scripture, and that is that effective worship is almost always connected to thanksgiving. A grateful heart. Preacher, theologian, Harry Ironside has this quote. He says, we would worry less if we praised more. We would worry less if we praised more. Thanksgiving is the enemy of discontent and dissatisfaction. We've talked in recent weeks with the psalm we, we walked through a couple of weeks ago, the idea that dissatisfaction is what most of our culture is trying to create in our lives. Trying to get us to think that there, no matter what we have or no matter what God has blessed us with, there's always something more that we should want, desire, or push towards. Creating discontentment is what basically gets us to do things in the world's culture. In God's culture, and his economy that he's calling us to, praise and thanksgiving actually settles our hearts. It causes us to stop and remember how good God is. And as Harry Ironside shared there, if we want to worry less, we should praise more. Thanksgiving is the direct enemy of dissatisfaction and discontentment. Philippians 4 is one of those places that really unpacks that for us. But this idea of seeking the peace that passes understanding. And too often we jump right to the end of that passage in Philippians, but right along with Dr. Ironside's quote here, if we jump to the end and just want the peace that passes understanding, but we don't do the things before it, we're not following God's direct formula for us. 
He calls us to rejoice, to give thanks. And as we rejoice and give thanks, then he calms our hearts. And that's the peace that passes understanding because peace in peaceful times is not passing understanding. Peace in the tumultuous times passes understanding. And that's what God wants to bring to our lives. And one of the ways he wants to do that is through being together, gathering together regularly with the church family and praising God for all that he's done. The second quote that I want to read for you, it's, I know it's in your app and I think we'll have it up here, but it's a longer quote, but follow with me because I think it's vitally important. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a writer, a German writer, and he ended up in the end, I won't, I won't walk through his whole story, in the end he ended up being imprisoned for his faith and being killed for his faith and following of Jesus. He only lived to be 39 years old, but in the midst of this, he wrote two, what I believe are two of the most pivotal books in the Christian faith. One is called The Cost of Discipleship. If you haven't read it, it's a wonderful book to read, but make sure that you're ready to sit down and take some time. The second one, and the one that I'll bring this quote from today, is called Life Together. And it's an entire book that Bonhoeffer wrote around what it means to be part of the family of God. And what it looks like to interact in that family well and to know how God's called us to be part of it. Here's the quote I want to read for you. It's from Life Together. It's about the gathering of the saints. Now remember, Bonhoeffer writes this in the midst of Nazi Germany. So he is under direct persecution. He ends up imprisoned because he continued to gather with his church. So take that context in light of the words that we are going to read here. Bonhoeffer says, so between the death of Christ and the last day, it is only by a gracious anticipation of the last things that Christians are privileged to live in visible fellowship with other Christians. That's the church gathered, that we have the freedom and the opportunity and the graciousness from God to be able to be together to worship. He goes on. It is by the grace of God that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly in this world to share God's word and sacrament. Not all Christians receive this blessing. There are places in our world right now where that blessing is probably going away. He goes on, the imprisoned, the sick, the scattered, the lonely, the proclaimers of the gospel in heathen lands, they stand alone. They know that visible fellowship is a blessing. They remember, as the psalmist did, how they, went with fellow, with, how they went with the multitude to the house of God, with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept holy day. That's from Psalm 42. He goes on, but they remember alone in far countries, a scattered seed according to God's will. Yet what is denied them as an actual experience they seize upon more fervently in faith. There are a lot of places in the world where the church is not allowed to gather. But in the midst of that, the saints gather in faith, even if they're not in the same room. Bonhoeffer goes on, and he's writing particularly, remember, he's writing to a, a German church that is under direct persecution and possible death. He goes on and says, it is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. 
It's really easy to take things for granted. He goes on. It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us, that the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living in common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. Bonhoeffer, not long after this, was put to death. It was actually after the end of the war that he was killed, but there was still control there and he was still imprisoned. See, persecution clarifies things for us. Difficulty has a tendency to wipe the fog away and bring to the surface things that are of most importance. And as Bonhoeffer encouraged both those German Christians going through Nazi persecution, and as he encourages our hearts today, it's very easy to take that for granted when it's freely given every day. But it's a discipline of the Christian's heart to actually value the gathered church, to value being able to be face-to-face with brothers and sisters. Psalm 92 is that. That's what we see as the psalmist writes here. David is writing. This is not a particular time of persecution for God's people, but David is writing and leading them in song to remind them in a time that may not be in the middle of persecution what they've learned in the middle of persecution. Remember what God showed you in the trials. Because honestly, it's very difficult to let those things slip away in the times that are smooth sailing. It's very easy to get undisciplined, to get laxed in the things that God shows you through difficulties. That is why I believe in a lot of circumstances, God allows trials into our lives to bring clarity, to bring precision and discipline to our hearts. Because when you are going through a difficult time, you start to realize what is most important and what you need. Because there's a lot of things in our lives that we actually don't need. I have this conversation often with my children. They'll come and say something like, Dad, I need something. And my usual response, and they can tell you this, is need is a strong word. That's a really strong word. There's, there's only like a couple of things you actually need in life. Small handful of things. But the presence of God for the Christian is a need. That's what God shows us all through his walk with his people as he seeks to dwell with us continually through his story is that us being in fellowship with each other and with him is a direct need for the Christian. Psalm 92, let's take a look and dig in here as we see the psalmist's encouragement and what God has for us. I love the Psalms for this, for one of these reasons, this is one, is that it is a joyous place to read certain things. It's also a difficult place to read certain things. This happens to be a psalm on the upswing. It's a psalm, if you look in your Bible, it probably says right at the top there, most of our Bibles have headings there. It says, a song for Sabbath. 
So this is to be sung on the day when the people of God will be getting together to worship, to remind each other of who God is and what he's done in their lives and remind of each other what he's called them to. So it's very effective that we do it today. And we look at Psalm 92. Let's read together. I'm gonna read the whole Psalm, top to bottom, all 15 verses, then we'll go back and start to unpack some of the three sections here that he has for us. Psalm 92, verse one. It's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At your works I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers will be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. May God bless his word this morning to our hearts, especially as we think about where we are this morning and the privilege we have to be able to be in each other's presence and worship the God who has saved us. As we experience this privilege, this grace, as Bonhoeffer described to us, there are particular things that can help us and remind us. This morning, we're going to look at this psalm in three sections. So if you're a note taker or you make notes in your Bible or you're following our app, please follow along with us in these three sections. The first one is this, a worshiping people, Sabbath. A worshiping people, Sabbath. That's verses one through five. The second section will be verses six through 11, where we will look at the fact that a worshiping people overcome. A worshiping people overcome. And then our third section this morning will be verses 12 to 15, as we talk about the fact that a worshiping people flourish. So a worshiping people Sabbath, they overcome and they flourish. This psalm is a reminder. Remember, a lot of these psalms were sung as people were heading to the house of the Lord. So they would be heading to the Temple Mount, and they would be reciting these psalms together. It's much like what we do and just did on Sunday morning. As we come together, before we dig into God's Word, we have some opportunities to sing and to realign our heart to get us focused on the things that God would like us to be focused on as we get into his word. So I would encourage you, I, I, I think often, and, and actually just recently my wife and I were talking and Val says to me, she said, you know, she's been um, helping and doing some things at the door and greeting people some, and, and she started, she said, I, 
I need to be a little bit careful about this because I, I love talking to people, but to miss the music before the, the worship and the singing before we get into studying God's word and seeing what he has for us, it, it's a little bit harder to, as you would say, this is language she used, but the one I would use is to get into a groove, to get, to get into a, a good rhythm of understanding that the worries of our week can go away and who God is is bigger than that. And this is the truth that we hope our kids learn, right? Some of the, most of these psalms were meant to be sung in family units together as they headed a particular direction to the temple. So it would be reminding, and we see this in this psalm and in many psalms, multiple generations singing and worshiping together so that your younger people could see that it is good to follow the Lord for their whole lifetime. And the promise, not to jump too far ahead, but if you look down at verse 14, it's, almost, it's also promised that those who are faithful in the Lord, those who worship and flourish in the Lord, they still bear fruit in old age. That God wants to use you from whenever you come into his family of grace, from whenever you are made new in him, all the way until you go to see him. And as we sing and worship together, that's one of the graces of being around the family of God, is you get to see people who have been doing it longer than you. And you get to look and say, okay, this week maybe I didn't feel like I could keep going forever, <laughs> but I know I can, because I see it in the family of God. So section one here, a worshiping people Sabbath. You may say, what does that have to do with actually coming together with the church and worshiping together? We have to understand the context of the psalm and the context that, that most of the Old Testament is written inside of is the fact that there was a singular day a week where there were particular commands from the Lord that set aside everything else that could distract you and almost forced you to focus. Now, we know our wandering hearts, right? We can have all the distractions removed and still not focus really well. But what God is doing is he's creating an environment where it is most advantageous and hopefully easiest for us to focus, to rein in our hearts and all the distractions. And as the people of God did that, one of the lessons that is encouraged is the fact that Sabbath stopping aids worship. I've heard a number of speakers and, and preachers convey this truth. It's the fact that we are always worshiping. God, God created us as worshipers. We are always worshiping something. The question is not, will you worship? The question is, what are you going to worship? Where will you fix your attention? Where will you place your trust and what will be your, as scripture says, our rock and refuge? Do we place it in things that are temporary or that could go away in a moment's notice? Or do we place it in him who never changes, who holds us for now and eternity? So we are always worshipers. But what God wants is he calls us to worship him rightly and allow ourselves to actually stop and that's, the, that's one of the pieces of Sabbathing, which 
We all know this, right? Our culture does not do this well, right? It does not do this well. You, You run until you can't anymore. You keep moving, fill your schedule, overfill your schedule, keep pushing, just keep moving. And tomorrow will be another day. You'll get as much done as you can. And what God works into it as a result of the curse out of the garden is we have to work hard. But in his grace, he also tells us, you also need to stop. Why is Sabbath key to worship? First, because rest is worship. You might think, wait, no, I'm resting. I'm not doing anything. No, you are doing something. You are visibly, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually acknowledging that God is in control of the universe and you're not, no matter how hard you work. So moments of rest are moments of worship for the believer. For the believer, being able to stop doing and sit in God's presence is a great blessing and it's a huge act of worship because we're recognizing who he is. If you look at these first few verses, it says it's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Another word, another name for the Lord is used here, Elion. If you look in the beginning of verse one, the word Lord, it is good to give thanks to the Lord. And that's, that particular name for God is used seven times in this psalm. It's the term Jehovah. Lord. He goes into the second part of this verse, he uses another name for God, Elion, which means most high. And as we go through this psalm, David is consistently reminding us of character traits of God and who he is. He says, it's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O most high. Verse two, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. What is verse two showing us? Your whole day should be encompassed with this. Your whole day, when you wake up in the morning and when you lay your head down at night. It's good to worship in all things. In the morning, to declare your steadfast love. Declare God's love when you get up, when you start your day. Start your day by reminding yourself of how loving God is. Because there will be a rush or a whirlwind of other things telling you how hard life is very quickly. But we are people who need to be reminded and need to be disciplined about how we worship. And then your faithfulness, declare your faithfulness by night. Start your day by reminding yourself of how much God loves you and how much he loves the world. End your day by looking back and saying, look how faithful God is. Another day. Another day of his love. He got me all the way through, got me back to bed at night. I can lay my head down and rest because God is faithful. Verse three. It says, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hand, I sing for joy. See, we don't come together as God's people and sing just because it's what we do on Sunday morning. We get together and sing to the Lord because his works are wondrous. 
There, there should be a sense of awe as we actually get to stop our day, our week, and say, let's just take some, take some time and let's think about how good God is. Let's sing about how good he is. Let's pray about how good he is and remind ourselves. This is one of the things that I think for believers that don't gather together regularly with the church family, one of the hardest things for people to remember is you need to be reminded of who God is and how good he is to you. You need, we need that reminders. We need to be in a regular rhythm of it being put right in our face because otherwise we get turned and we look at so many other things. So these first five verses, verse five wraps together this first section of being able to stop and rest as an act of worship. It says, how great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. Have you ever stopped and just kind of taken a few moments and started to ponder the fact that God thinks infinitely deeper about everything that you're concerned about. Everything. I was blown away one time. I was in the midst of a tough season and I remember talking with a friend and one of the things he said to me is he said, hey, do you remember when we were, when we were it was a guy I went to college with. It was a long time before that, but he says, you remember when we were in college? I said, yeah. He says, hey, do you remember that one time we were sitting in the talking, he remembered where we were. We were in the cafeteria at, uh, at the college we were at. And he says, do you remember sitting there talking? And we started to talk about how unbelievably mind-blowing it is that cells in our body actually stay together. And I was like, oh yeah, I do remember talking about that. It's a long time ago. He said, just, you know, he, he's a good brother. He just said, I just want to remind you of how intricate God's care is. So he cares all the way about that microscopic detail. He cares about what you're facing. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. Verse six. This is a verse, first time I read it, I remember being, I think I was a teenager. I might have been a little younger, 10 or 11 maybe. I remember reading this verse one time and thinking, oh, because my dad used to have a saying all the time. He says, you know, you shouldn't say that. And I say, why? Say, well, you know, God doesn't talk about that. Those words aren't in the Bible. And then I read this, and the word stupid was in the Bible. So I remember as a kid, I'm like, oh, there we go. License, right? <laughs> Unbelievable, the things that cross our mind when we're young. But he says here in verse 6, the stupid man cannot know. And I've actually, even when I was in Bible college, I actually was like, Really? Is that the word? Did a little word study, a little pulled it apart. I'm like, yeah, that's actually the word. Stupid. That's, it's a good translation. That's what's in there. When we fail to realize how great the works of the Lord are, that's the category we start to fall into. Foolishness. Literal stupidity. The smartest people in the room are not the people that can convince you that there's not a God who created all things. The smartest people in the room are the ones that can give that and say, there is a creator God that knows every single detail. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. 
foolishness and stupidity scripturally linked to not recognizing how great the works of the Lord are. Verse seven, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. And this is the reminder all through scripture if you look at what's immediately temporary and in front of you, you will be disillusioned. If you have an eternal mindset, you will be able to put everything that's happening in front of you in context. Does it look like evildoers get ahead sometimes? Yes, it looks like that. Scripture tells us that. All through it shouldn't be a surprise to us. But that getting ahead is really short-lived. It goes away quickly. Only what's done in the grace of the Lord and for him lasts forever. Whether you see it immediately getting you ahead or not, we need to have a long view of our spirituality and understand that eternity is a lot longer than what we spend here. So does it look sometimes like people who fly in the face of the Lord or people that reject him, people that speak against God or uh, do evil regularly? Does it look like they're actually getting ahead in life? Sometimes it does look like they're getting ahead in life. But the reality is, I'm not concerned with getting ahead in this life. We need to be concerned with getting ahead in the next one. So it doesn't matter what this life looks like to the world around us. Apart from it looking like a people who are constantly giving thanks for the works of the Lord. That is what lasts forever. Verse eight, but you, O Lord, even when it looks like evildoers are flourishing, you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. Everybody has the same end. Do we remember this? Death is a reality for every person who draws breath. Unless Jesus comes back first. So even if it looks like people who are disdaining God and working against the things of the Lord are moving ahead in this life and gathering all of their things and flourishing, it's actually not reality. It's a temporary myth that eternity shows us the exact opposite of. A worshiping people overcome. See, verses six through nine show us what it looks like in a temporary earthly mindset to see people who are ignoring God. Sometimes it looks like they're making it. But, verse 10, you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. What are those two word pictures for us? I mean, sometimes you might read things like this in the psalm and say, you exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. Is that a compliment? Is that good? Are you calling me an ox? Do I want that? See, what the psalmist is saying here is, the wild ox in David's day was a majestic animal whose horns were wide and strong. It was an animal that was feared. It was an animal that was revered. So when David uses this picture, remember these psalms are poetic. He's singing a song. He's leading people in song. And he's saying, 
hey, I want a picture for you. As we're singing this praise to God on our way to worship, let's remember how God has blessed us. He's given us his righteousness to walk around this earth with. He's called us his people, which in David's time in the animal kingdom, a majestic, revered animal would be a wild ox. So he's using that picture for the people saying, hey, this is how good God's been to you. Then he uses the second one, you have poured over me fresh oil. We talked about this recently. It's time that talked about unity and pouring oil. The unity of the brethren being together is like oil running down over Aaron's head and off of his beard and dripping. And the idea of oil doing that is not helpful to me, right? I, I think of that, I'm like, then I have to go take a shower, okay? But in David's day, this picture is one that oil signified, remember, some very important things. The presence of the Lord and the anointing of the Lord. So this oil that David's talking about, when he is with God's people and he's thinking about God's great works and he is, he is just in awe of all that God has done for him and his worldview is already right in that moment getting righted again from the distractions and the other passions and desires of this world to the ones that God has established for us. And all those things, it's starting to zero in. And David says, you have poured fresh oil over my head. You've reminded me your presence is with me. And I'm anointed by you because I'm a son or a daughter of the king. So he goes on in verse 11. He says, not only have you exalted me as a wild ox, have you poured fresh oil, your presence all over me. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. Now, did David always see those right in the present? No, he didn't all the time. We know David's story. He was caught in lots of tumultuous scenarios where he was either being chased, being, people were trying to kill him. His son even does this in the end, trying to take the throne. It's a very tumultuous life for David, but he wasn't saying, right now, all my enemies are gone. He was saying, I've got my eyes fixed on eternity and I know who wins. I know who wins. Even if today doesn't look like it, I know what the end holds. An old saying, I've read the back of the book, right? And if you do skip to the end, it's very intriguing, puts the rest of the book in great context. David knew in the end what eternity was gonna hold what the future held for him because he knew his God. Not because he knew his circumstances really well, but because he knew his God. Verse 12. Not only do a worshiping people overcome, and David was reminding us of that in these few verses here down through 11, I know I will overcome because God has already done it. He goes into verse 12. He says, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Take verse 12, and if you, or if you put notes in your Bible, if you don't, maybe write this next to it. Connect verse 12 to verse 7. Look back at verse 7 with me. What are the evildoers like? They're like a sprout of grass. Okay? Think about a sprout of grass. Okay? And then verse 12. 
What are the righteous like? They flourish like a palm tree. And if you've ever been in places like the Middle East or other places where palm trees are common, palm trees are huge. They're not the nice dainty little palm trees that we put in resorts, right? These are massive, towering. And he's comparing the evildoers, like a sprout of grass, to the righteous who flourish like a palm tree. He then says, secondly, they grow like a cedar in Lebanon. And the cedars of Lebanon were the most well-known trees in the entire world at that point. They were cut down and carted everywhere. They were the tallest, largest. They were the strongest. They were a symbol of strength. So we compare verse 7 to verse 12. Evildoers are like a sprout of grass that we have to cut every week and bag up and throw away. Versus, you ever stand under a huge majestic tree and look up? It's inspiring. And then just for a moment, next time you get to do that, look down at the grass. Not so inspiring. Okay? Those who fail to follow the Lord are like sprouts of grass under your feet. And those who follow the Lord in righteousness and worship him well and come and value all that he's given to us and the opportunity to be face-to-face, as Bonhoeffer described for us, with the Christian brethren talking and singing and learning about the Lord, they're like palm trees or cedars in Lebanon. Verse 13, they are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. You want to know how to find stability and how to flourish? It's in God's presence. That's where it happens. They're not just random cedars or random palm trees planted anywhere. He says they are planted in the house of the Lord. And that's not a, for us, we understand this, right? In the new covenant, God sends the Holy Spirit to indwell his people. His presence doesn't reside inside of a building anymore. It resides in the heart's of those who have been made new in him. So that is what he's talking about here. When you follow the Lord well and worship him well and write your day and fix your attention and understand all that he's done for you, that is where you will flourish, in the presence of the Lord. Rightly fixing your attention. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. God's presence is where he intended for us to reside. Sin broke that and removed us. Jesus fixes us and brings us back in. So being in the presence of other Christians and acknowledging who God is and worshiping him with all that we have is where you will flourish. Verse 14, the verse we talked about earlier, they still bear fruit in old age. I have a very, I'm very careful about referring to people as old, right? It's in here in scripture, just like we had some words earlier, right? That we could use now. But because some people would view me as old. So I have to be a little careful. But how good is it that God tells us there's no end date on your flourishing in God. There's no cap on that. 
doesn't stop when you hit a certain age. Anyone, young, in between, older in years, has the opportunity to flourish in the Lord and bear fruit. There's no end date on that. You bear fruit as a believer until you get to see him, which is a great way to see the story. Verse 15, or the end of verse 14, they are full of sap and green. Again, older folks, that's a compliment, okay? Not you're full of sap, okay? It's it's actually, it's a compliment, okay? Because in the tree world, sap means you're still alive, okay? You've got vibrancy and life to you. You can bear fruit, okay? If you just pull that one sentence out of context, we're not sure that that's a good thing, okay? Kind of like being called a wild ox earlier, all right? So we just, we gotta understand what he's saying here in his poetic language, okay? Now, younger folks, don't walk up to the old folks that you know and say, I'm so glad you're full of sap and green, okay? It's this, I mean, unless you put it in a really poetic way and you can sing it well and it kind of fits, you can get a lot more by when you do that. But I wouldn't suggest doing it regularly, okay? But the idea here is that they are full of life and vibrancy and can bear fruit. Verse 15, to declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Verse 15 is the wrap-up of this entire psalm. Why does this psalm exist? Why do we continue to exist? If there was no point in me being here, the best time for God to take me away would be the moment of regeneration, right? That very millisecond before I screw it up, okay? Right away. So why are we still here? We're still here because verse 15 is our mission. We are here to declare declare that the Lord is upright. He is righteous. We are here to declare that he is our rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. It's a nice little mission statement for all of us. Why do you wake up in the morning? That's it. To declare the uprightness, the righteousness, and the foundation that we find in God. So as we take Psalm 92, and I would encourage you if you, I know that long quote we read at the beginning from Bonhoeffer and Life Together, it's in your app. If you you don't have the app to download, it's, it's in there. It's all written out. Go back to it, visit it. Remind yourself that the blessings God has given us to be able to worship him, to be able to gather together, to be able to see each other face to face could go away momentarily and there are many places in this world where Christians don't have it. So let's not take it for granted. Let's be a worshiping people who rest well. Let's be a worshiping people who understand that we will overcome in Christ. And let's be a worshiping people that know that we flourish greatest when we're in his presence. Let's try to be there as often as we can and ask him to call us back when we get away.